Hello there, little masters, and welcome to another weekly episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, well, a little bird told us to bring some extra good stuff, but what language did he speak? <laughs> West to hell, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West, the bowman to my elven king, uh, Alan Sisto. Well, that is better than the disbelieving townsfolk, but now I'm supposed to buy that you're royalty? Oh, with, yes. like, fabulous hair? The, the, the fabulousest. The yes. fabulousest. <laughs> well, folks, tonight we are the most fabulousest of hairs. The most fabulousest of hairs. There you go. Uh, despite Sean's digressions, we are moving on <laughs> to the return of the king. Uh, no, not that one. <laughs> we mean the king of Dale. Well, not just yet. But today we will meet the character who's destined to step into that role. Not just yet, indeed. Because first, he's got to get through a whole lot of fire and water. And mm-hmm. we're going to get through all of chapter 14, fire and water, in this episode. Well, all in due time, because before we start the chapter, it's time for another installment of This Week in Tolkien History. All right. Well, this episode is releasing on May 6th, and we've got a few fun things to commemorate. First of all, on May 10th, 1915, Tolkien painted a watercolor called The Shores of Fairy, featuring the Elvish City Core, which was the early name of Tyrion upon Tuna, if you recall. It's been way too long oh, since man. I've said Tyrion upon Tuna. Tyrion upon Tuna. <laughs> and you can actually see this illustration in the book J.R.R. Tolkien, Artist and Illustrator, edited by mm-hmm. Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull. Um, I'll actually look for an image that we can legally share online. But for yeah. those who can't see it, I'll, I'll quote the description that's given by Skull and Hammond in their chronology. Um, it says, The city is framed by two dying trees from whose branches grow a crescent moon and a blazing sun, an early visual expression of the two trees, which will become an essential feature in Tolkien's mythology, mm. while in the sky is a single star. So maybe you're hearing that and you're thinking, well, why is this important, Sean? Well, if I'm interpreting Skull and Hammond's commentary correctly, this is the first time Tolkien put the idea of the two trees of Valinor down oh, on purpose. Oh, yeah, 1915, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. And it, and it was actually as a, as a piece of as art. As a piece so. of art. Yeah. Well, that, that makes mine pale in comparison. But uh, this next date has already <laughs> passed. But on May 3rd, 1938, so 80 years ago, Stanley Unwin sent Tolkien a report by his son Rainer on what was then only called the Hobbit sequel. Now, who can forget Rainer's awesome review of The Hobbit? Of course. If you yeah. have forgotten it, go listen to episode 53 again. But for the sequel, the now 12-year-old Rainer wrote, I like the first chapter. The second and third have, I think, a little too much conversation and Hobbit talk, which tends to make it lag a little. Otherwise, it seems very good, although it does not start as quickly as The Hobbit. But the Black Riders seem all right. What will it be called? <laughs> I love such, it. Such a great 12-year-old response. Totally. To, the beginning of, you know, what would eventually become Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah it just doesn't start fast so, enough. Too much exposition. A whole lot of talk. But these Black Riders, they seem cool. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's <laughs> fantastic. Well, and speaking of Rainer, I've got one from a much older Rainer, actually 20 years later, May hmm. 9th, 1958. He wrote a letter to Tolkien about the negotiations with uh, Morton Grady Zimmerman and Forrest J. Ackerman over oh. the ill-fated Lord of the Rings movie adaptation. Ill fated and yeah, well, ill, ill, <laughs> ill received. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in this letter of May 9th, 1958, <laughs> Rayner asked Tolkien to send over his annotations to the storyline, <laughs> which resulted in a very entertaining letter. Some folks have heard us reference before, letter mm-hmm. 210, in which Tolkien just unloaded on the script treatment for, That's the for only this way to movie. Put it. <laughs> and with good reason, because I mean, some of the stuff that was in it would have made. 
even the most purest fan among us long for, you know, uncertain Aragorn and the elves at Helm's Deep again. An emo Frodo. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. You know, um, it just makes me think of, of uh, that talk that Tom Shippey gave. Yeah. He's kind of citing that letter. He goes, and, and Tolkien was writing all of it in, in red ink, in increasing levels of, of anger. <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, I would say something like, well, let's not go overboard here. But the truth is, you're right. That Ackerman script is, well, let's just say it's better that some things never see the light of day, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> well, before we can continue going down that line, which would be very entertaining, we should probably get on with the discussion. What do you think? Let's do that. Well, we are in Chapter 14, Fire and Water. And unlike last chapter, we are going to start at the very beginning because it Why is a is very that? good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> and I will go yeah, ahead and, and, and start. It's been like maybe two episodes since you used that one. It's maybe been that, yeah. <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. All right, go ahead. Now, if you wish, like the dwarves, to hear news of Smaug, you must go back again to the evening when he smashed the door and flew off in rage two days before. Remember what we did in the last chapter, two days and one night. That's why That's right. That's why yeah. I think the timing is this. I think you're spot on, yep. The men of the lake town Esgaroth were mostly indoors, for the breeze was from the black east and chill. But a few were walking on the keys and watching, as they were fond of doing, the stars shine out from the smooth patches of the lake as they opened in the sky. From their town, the lonely mountain was mostly screened by the low hills at the far end of the lake, through a gap in which the running river came down from the north. Only its high peak could they see in clear weather, and they looked seldom at it, for it was ominous and drear even in the light of morning. Now it was lost and gone, blotted in the dark. Suddenly it flickered back to view. A brief glow touched it and faded. Look, said one, the lights again. Last night the watchman saw them start and fade from midnight until dawn. Something is happening up there. Perhaps the king under the mountain is forging gold, said another. It is long since he went north. It's time the songs begin to prove themselves again. Which king? said another with a grim voice. As like as not, it is the marauding fire of the dragon, the only king under the mountain we have ever known. You're always foreboding gloomy things, said the others. Anything from floods to poisoned fish. Think of something cheerful. <laughs> I'm thinking of you on a spit. <laughs> You, you, ju- you just need to smile more, Bard. Seriously, Bard. Oops, I'm sorry. Spoiler. Oh, oh, yeah, spoiler. <laughs> Oops. Then suddenly a great light appeared in the low place in the hills, and the northern end of the lake turned golden. The king beneath the mountain, they shouted. His wealth is like the sun, his silver like a fountain, his river's golden run. The river is running gold from the mountain, they cried. And everywhere windows were opening and feet were hurrying. And custom choirs were getting ready to sing. (laughs) We'll have no singing here. No singing. There was once more a tremendous excitement and enthusiasm. But the grim-voiced fellow ran hot-foot to the master. The dragon is coming or I am a fool, he cried. Cut the bridges. Two arms. Two arms. (sighs) There you go. Fun stuff. It's a pretty exciting start to a chapter. It really is. And I have to point out something that I should have mentioned in the last chapter. Notice here the breeze is from the Black East. Earlier, if I remember correctly, the breeze when they got to the um, 
the front gate when Bilbo and the Dwarves got to the front gate was also a bitter easterly breeze. Oh, yeah, uh, and, and, you know, we've talked about this before in Lord of the Rings and I think even in the Silmarillion we find out wind from the east is never a good thing. No. You no, know, the, east uh, is, the east is always the direction of, well, things like Mordor and yeah. evil and darkness. Even and though Mordor things. is not east of here. That is true. Mordor is more due south of here. Yeah, but still, the East is just sort of symbolic. It's always symbolic, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's always opposite symbolically of the West. That's right. So anyway, just thought I should mention that. Very good um, catch. Yeah. Well, what a what a like you said, what an action filled opening in comparison mm-hmm. uh, to some of these other chapters. But let's talk about some of these details, right? We get first off the fact that the Lonely Mountain isn't readily visible from the town. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I you almost got to wonder whether that has an impact. On the fact that the townspeople have, at least in recent generations, disbelieved the existence of the dragon. Yeah. I mean, I think it does. I mean, it tells us that they looked seldom at it, yeah. which tells us that they basically ignored it. And I think it's a case of out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Out of sight, out of and, mind. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, they're about to be reminded that it's not quite as far away as they think. <laughs> yeah. Not quite. But but it is sort of they sort of have the luxury of being able to ignore it because it's just yeah. far enough away. Exactly. I mean, it's not right there in their face like mm-hmm. if they were living in Dale, for instance. Right. right. Not that they would live in Dale because then they would just be dragon food. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They tried that for a while. <laughs> Rents and property values have gone way down in Dale, though. Yeah. They really yeah, you, should consider buying in that area. You could probably buy a house for like a dollar there. Probably. Really. Yeah. 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 Going to have a hard time finding a contractor to build the place back up. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Insurance is going to be expensive, too. Insurance will be really – I don't even think you're going to be able to get any insurance. It's like yeah, they're, they're just not going to cover you. Sorry. No. You're on your own. Um, second night of the lights on the mountain. See, that's – Yeah. So, so we get the lights now as he's smashed the door and flew off in rage. Um, but the day before, he had also done something. So that's why we get – oh, they saw the lights from midnight to dawn. And that's where we were talking about Bilbo feeling that strange lightning of the heart. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the previous night was when Smaug had gone after the thief who stole the cup, and he ended up eating mm-hmm. some of the horses, I think six of them, if I remember correctly. Uh, this tumult was yeah. his destruction of the door in the little grassy spot, basically the right. whole side of the mountain. Interesting. Right, yeah. Interesting. Very, very cool. And and a, and a neat detail that Tolkien weaves in there that is actually very easy to miss, and I actually did miss it even on this reading. I had yeah. to, It was, you know, kind of us talking about it that made me realize mm-hmm. how, how well these two – um, these two moments correlate. Yeah, how the timelines fit together. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder, you know, if we'd read it when it was originally the manuscript, we might have noticed it more obviously because I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, you might not have even read this when we covered Ratliff a little bit, but Tolkien had originally placed this chapter before the last one. I so did we, see that, we yeah. went to basically after Smaug took off, we stuck with Smaug. And right. then we came back. And we saw dwarves. exactly what happened to him as soon as he left. Yeah. And then came back. But mm-hmm. you know, he decided instead to go to the, the way it is now to increase the tension. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had to go back and rewrite a lot of that chapter about how, well, they weren't sure whether he was there or not. Right. Uh, and that made, you know, much more tension. So. And, and it certainly does. And it keeps us with our main characters. And oh, I yeah. think that was, that was the right choice was to the make. the right but, choice by far, yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. I think if we had already known that Smaug had been killed, uh, we would see this lightning of the heart, I think, in that context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we would. But yeah, I am glad he made that change. It makes for much more entertaining. It does, reading, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Interesting. You know, we get the townspeople talking about, once again, 
the songs should prove themselves. I love this. It's that same <laughs> passivity that we've been noticing before. There's nothing about, you know, any person doing anything to fulfill a prophecy. Right. No, it's, it's just the like, prophecy has to be it's, just fulfilled. It's time for this great thing to happen for us. Yay. Yeah. Yay. You yeah. <laughs> catastrophe. Woohoo. Yeah. Give me an E. Give me a U. <laughs> give me a C. No, I won't do that. We don't know how to spell the rest of it. No, we don't. <laughs> We are but simple lake towners. We are. We are but simple lake towners. That passivity just is interesting. And, of course, the expectation that they're going to get rich. Hey, what do you know? It's gold. And we're going to see that even later on. I, oh, you know, yeah. When, when after all the bad things happen, they're still yeah. thinking about getting rich. Yeah. Yeah. Though at that point, just getting recompense would be would be good enough. Well, um, but that's not I mean, it does no, say some, of them, some of them are thinking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what, I, that's what I'm thinking about is some of them are thinking about, you know, I think getting some yeah. nice goodies from the South. I think it says <laughs> not exactly that, but something like goodies. That. Yeah. I don't hear Tolkien yeah, using that. No, word. He doesn't use that word too much. So who's the king? Bard. And, and again, <laughs> you, you all know this is Bard, though we don't find that out for another few paragraphs. Yeah. Um, but I love Bard's line that, you know, it's uh, when the guy says perhaps the, the king the, of the mountains of yeah, gold. Yeah, uh, which and, king are you talking about here? The right. one that the one that still lives there? <laughs> right. Yeah. Or the guy that just left this town a few weeks ago and didn't have any weapons with him. <laughs> and had no plan for dealing with <laughs> it him. Had no, yeah, it had only, yeah. 12, you know, 13 of his buddies with him. Yeah. yeah. The only king under the mountain we have ever known. I mean, that's a grim thought, but it is a true thought. That's the thing. I mean, you know, the... We talk about this grimness, right? Which said another with a grim voice. I think there's another, there's a number of times the grim voiced fellow. Mm-hmm. And then we get it described later again that uh, the guy with the grim voice. So he's yeah. grim. Yeah. But, but like you said, it, he's also true. He's also accurate. Yeah. And, and I don't has... know about you, but that's more important to me than somebody sounding true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and obviously some people disagree because they just say, well, just think of something cheerful. You just need to smile more, Bard, <laughs> just... you know? Always look on the bright side of life. life. (laughs) See, you sang it. I just said it. Exactly. That's what they're looking for from him. (laughs) Just Um, as the dragon comes to chomp them all up to bits and burn them to crisp, you know. And and, and we now have a pretty strong contender for the title of this episode. I think we probably do. (laughs) (laughs) But but he does have wisdom that surpasses that of the average Lake Towner. He probably can spell you catastrophe. Um, (laughs) Well, he is a descendant of Geryon. Right. And I think and I think that's key because I think it's a reminder of how that wisdom is what separates a king uh, or a rightful Mm, king, you know, kingly behavior from sort of the politician mindset of the master. You know, that's what separates a king from a master. If we go back to some of our chapters ago and we talked about that, that was a great, great little bit about that distinction between king and master. I was that was fun listening to that not too long ago. That was a great, great discussion. You know, he seems to, I noticed, he serves the same purpose for the Lake Towners as Bilbo does for the dwarves. Sort of a wet blanket, um, <laughs> inconvenient reminder of the truth, you know? Yeah. Uh, this is, That's a good you point. You don't want to hear him, but he's right. He's absolutely right. You need to hear this more often. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he's telling you the things you don't want to hear. Yeah. That's, you know, I don't think I caught that until this reading, that mm-hmm. sort of similar role that Bard and Bilbo both play. Yeah, um, but it's. A, I think it's that's. An interesting I think that's thing. a really good catch. I don't think I ever picked up on that either. Well, you have a really dramatic reading here. Oh man, I have, I have to tell you, it was hard for me to just say I'm going to give this one to Sean. <laughs> well, but thank you ahead. for doing it. <laughs> Before long, so great was his speed, they could see him as a spark of fire rushing towards them, 
and growing ever huger and more bright, and not the most foolish doubted that the prophecies had gone rather wrong. Still they had a little time. Every vessel in the town was filled with water, every warrior was armed, every arrow and dart was ready, and the bridge to the land was thrown down and destroyed, before the roar of Smaug's terrible approach grew loud, and the lake rippled red as fire beneath the awful beating of his wings. Mm. Amid shrieks and wailing and the shouts of men, he came over them, swept towards the bridges, and was foiled. The bridge was gone, and his enemies were on an island in deep water, too deep and dark and cool for his liking. If he plunged into it, a vapor and a steam would arise, enough to cover all the land with a mist for days. But the lake was mightier than he. It would quench him before he could pass through. Roaring, he swept back over the town. A hail of dark arrows leaped up and snapped and rattled on his scales and jewels, and their shafts fell back, kindled by his breath burning and hissing into the lake. Hmm. No fireworks you ever imagined equaled the sights that night. At the twanging of the bows and the shrilling of the trumpets, the dragon's wrath blazed to its height, till he was blind and mad with it. No one had dared to give battle to him for many an age, nor would they have dared now if it had not been for the grim-voiced man. Bard was his name, who ran to and fro, cheering on the archers and urging the master to order them to fight to the last arrow. Oh, man, what a scene. It's such a great scene. I love that. This sense of impending doom as you see Mm -hmm. the dragon coming. Yeah. Which, by the way, seems to me like a tactical error on Smaug's part. Wouldn't it have been better for him to not have the fire going yet? Don't stoke it until you're right on top of him? Then maybe the bridge Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been thrown down. But, you know, he's a dragon, and he's not really acting out of strategy he really is just no, he's mad he's angry yeah he's, he's so mad. angry he's that they helped this guy steal a cup mm-hmm. i'm gonna kill all of you because one guy stole a cup stole one cup from me that's right that's a uh, very good thing to point out that, that that's all that's yeah, been stolen from him at that's this point. all that's been stolen mm-hmm. um i mean this is you know i want my two dollars on a massive scale <laughs> right yep <laughs> yep what a visual description the lake rippled red as fire beneath the awful beating of his wings. That mm. just, ooh, you can see that. You can, yeah. And then, oh. It's spooky. It really is. This is powerful, powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the prophecies have gone rather wrong. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a funny conclusion, isn't it? It really is. I mean, at first you think, well, yeah, that's an understatement. But then you realize, no, no, the prophecies hadn't gone wrong. It's just that these the Lake Town folks have created a set of beliefs, almost a almost a cult, if you will, um, around, around the prophecies. That, yeah. And they, they've reinterpreted them to mean things differently. Yeah. And I think that interpretation is the key. I mean, there's, yeah. for me, I see an, an, an element of that uh, that ironic misinterpretation, you know, yes. the, the, kind of like the classic, um, you know, the Greek oracles, you know, the, the mm. classic misinterpretation <laughs> yeah. of that, or, or like Macbeth or something. You know, oh, they, yeah, yeah. They thought the mountain would go golden in the night. Well, it did. It did. The lake shall shine and burn. That's one of the lines from the song. Well, yep. yeah, it, that's coming true. Um, but it wasn't Thorin spilling gold out of his gates. It's a dragon setting your <laughs> yeah. town on fire. Yeah. So, yeah, there is kind of a, the, yeah, like you say, the prophecies hadn't gone wrong. They had misinterpreted them and yeah. ran with it. Yeah. And that's, well, you're not kidding. that's the problem. Over and over. And, and over like you it. said, they did kind of form this kind of cult about it. And... Um, it sort of became a, you know, a, a pleasant fantasy to believe in. Yeah, you know, it is a pleasant it's... fiction. 
Uh, yep. The immediate last second preparation. I, I love this. And it's all, I think, due to Bard and his leadership. Mm. Oh, yeah. That yeah. they start to, to try to prepare for this. You know, the, the, the getting the water vessels, getting the armed warriors, you know, take the bridge down. Can we talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, let's. so you're supposed to get rid of the bridge when the dragon comes? Is that is that <laughs> yeah. the proper that would uh, be the tactical idea. response? Because somebody should have told Oradreth that. Yeah. Actually, wait. A couple people did tell Oradreth that. Well, that's true. They did tell him, <laughs> cast down the stones of your pride. Yes. By the way, Ulmo sends this message. Yeah, Ulmo. <laughs> this message approved by Ulmo. <laughs> My, I'm oh, Ulmo, my name I is approve Ulmo. this message. I approve this message. That's right. Paid for uh, by the committee to not have Nargatharm destroyed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the committee for the preservation of Nargathron. The committee for the preservation of Nargathron. I love it. I love um, it. But uh, but remember, and I didn't even think about this a few episodes ago when I compared the master to Oradreth. Mm-hmm. But you're um, right. But aren't there you? Is, <laughs> there is something, I mean, you know, yeah. Bard is fortunately able to convince people to throw down the bridge, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> just fun. Yeah, I don't know that he would have been able to do it on his own. Clearly, he was able to convince folks to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. But he does. It is interesting that he's not able to go around cheering on the archers and telling them to fight to the last arrow. He's urging the master to order them to fight to the last arrow. Yeah. He does recognize his his part. He recognizes his authority. Yeah, that's right. The limits to his authority. He can yeah. only do what he can do. Yeah, um, and that's interesting. I, yeah. I think there's something here. There's a lot actually here. I don't know there's a lot to talk about, but there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of uh, kind of foreboding here about Smaug and his reaction to the destruction of the bridge. The fact that his enemies are now on this island in the water that's too deep and dark and cold, mm-hmm. and the lake was mightier than he. Mm. You know, we, we talk about kind of this battle of elementals. You know, throughout, right? I mean, we, yeah. we go all the way back into the Silmarillion, and there's all this kind of elemental battle with, with you know, with Melkor and yeah, uh, yeah. The, the fires. Melkor and he, sort of being fire, and then exactly. Manwe and Aule and Ulmo. Mm-hmm. And you can even see a little bit of that in the in the Nargadron yeah. story. If Ulmo is water, and you're um, right. I mean, I don't think you want to make too much of that, but there's there's a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, and here, you know, we get this this kind of conflict of elements, mm-hmm. and Smaug well, realizes what gives the chapter yeah. its title too that's so right it should be it is something we should be paying attention to. it is you're right we should be paying attention and he recognizes smaug sees and knows full well that the one element that's more powerful than he is the lake yeah uh, and that he would not survive um, you know being being in the lake right uh, if he plunged into the lake so he knows to avoid it but he knows to avoid it um he has wings which Glaurung yeah. didn't have. So he's got a little bit of an advantage there. But obviously, he the fact that he has fear of the lake, mm-hmm. I think, is really key. Well, a no place to land. I mean, I think the bridge was a yeah. place where he could, like, true. you know, stand and blow his and just his That's fire. true. And just kind of, like, flamethrower the whole town from the front. Right. Yeah. Whereas here, he's got to do it, like, you know, with sweeping passes. He's got to do it. That's true. He's got to do the it flying way. overhead. He's got to kind of looping back and forth, avoiding mm-hmm. arrows. Yeah. Well, or, he doesn't or, really have to or avoid just letting the him bounce of off of him. He's not yeah, off of his diamond encrusted west right. Bit, right? What a picture that is, too, right? All the arrows going up and just snapping and breaking. Just, yeah. And then as the shafts go back, they're kindled by kindled his breath. Kindled by his fire. Yeah. And falling into the lake on yeah. fire. That's a visual, man. That that Ooh. That is a visual. And the, the fireworks comparison is is fantastic. It really is, because that's what it makes you think of, is, mm-hmm. is these sparkly things falling out of the sky. That's yeah. exactly what we should be mm-hmm. imagining. Yeah. Um, 
Smaug is totally out of control here, though. I think that's really what we end up with, isn't it? He is. I mean, we get we get words like reckless and rage. Blind and mad with his wrath. Yeah. Yep. He's just beyond. And again, you know, now it's not just that something was stolen, but that people are daring to fight him. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting to see his, his reaction to all of this. I mean, this is a dragon. Yeah. And he's he doesn't seriously seem to be in too much danger. He he clearly has the upper hand, but he's oh, just yeah, yeah. he's angry at the fact that they would just dare to to fight back. Yeah. I mean you'd think he would just kinda of laugh this off and dismiss it like mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that they're giving me a fight. Are you yeah. kidding me? Um and yet it's that anger that ends up putting him in a in a vulnerable position. We're not gonna read that the whole paragraph, but there's a line here about how he is reckless in his rage. Mm-hmm. Taking Yeah, no that's what heed. I was thinking of a moment ago, yeah to turn his scaly sides toward his foes. He's just, at this point, he doesn't care because he doesn't think about the fact that there might be a right. weakness. Yeah. Uh, so instead of trying to keep the side that he knows is, you know, impenetrable, uh, you know, towards towards those shooting arrows at him, he just is reckless. He's just he's just not not giving it any thought. Yeah. Just flying that, That's around an important concept. Stuff. The yeah. idea of being reckless here is, is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does end up smashing the the roof of the great house. We might even say it's a, a little bit of overmode. Yeah, you know, you're right. Overmode. About that that uh, that that reckless pride. Um, mm-hmm. You know, pernicious uh, pride. Pernicious yeah. pride. That's the yeah. word. Love that. Um, but we see how the the sort of the that's always sort of the what happens immediately before the downfall of somebody like a, a, a Bertnoth or a, a Turin. Yeah. And uh, I think we're seeing a little bit of that here. I think you're right. Uh, no arrow hurts him. You know, it really looks at this point in the story as though the boasting he made to Bilbo a couple chapters ago is totally true. He kills where he wishes and none dare resist. Okay, they dare, but they don't effectively <laughs> They don't resist. really have, yeah, they don't really accomplish much. That wouldn't have been much of a boast. I kill where I wish and none effectively resist. <laughs> Just doesn't have the same Weakens it a little bit, it. yeah. It does, it does. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's so mad. He's like, man, guys, come on. I've been tweeting about how nobody dares to resist That's me. That's right. And here you and guys now, are resisting me. Hashtag resist the dragon. Don't, don't um, make me a liar, guys. Come on. <laughs> oh, now man, now can, I'm mad. Now I'm really, really now mad. Now I'm going to burn everything. The Burninator. Burninator <laughs> in the countryside. Okay, you don't. Did you ever uh, Homestar Runner? <gasps> No, I, I, oh, I never did, and so I didn't Strong, get that. Strong, bad, Burninator. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. Anybody who gets that, you'll have a good laugh. That that is <laughs> that is one of the highlights of the flash-based humor of the web back in the the, the nineties, or as yeah, as the oddies probably. Okay, I think about it. I mean, I've heard of it, but yeah, I don't, I've never I've never actually watched it. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> I might actually put the Burninator in the show notes if I can find it. <laughs> Too funny. All right. I'm going to go ahead and right. read the next couple paragraphs here. Already men were jumping into the water on every side. Women and children were being huddled into laden boats in the market pool. Weapons were flung down. There was mourning and weeping. Where but a little time ago, the old songs of mirth to come had been sung about the dwarves. Now men cursed their names. The master himself was turning to his great gilded boat, hoping to row away in the confusion and save himself. Soon, all the town would be deserted and burned down to the surface of the lake. That was the dragon's hope. They could all get into boats for all he cared. There he could have fine sport hunting them, or they could stop till they starved. Let them try to get to land and he would be ready. 
Soon he would set all the shoreland woods ablaze and wither every field and pasture. Just now he was enjoying the sport of town baiting more than he had enjoyed anything for years. Wow. Even his naps, really, which is pretty much all he had over the last few years. Yeah, his naps um, and, oh, my gold is so pretty. <laughs> counting his gold again. I enjoy my gold. I still have exactly how much I had before. Oh, wait, I'm missing a cup. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to feel young again. You know, Smaug has gotten his groove back a little bit. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm town baiting now, baby. <laughs> town baiting, escapee barbecuing, yeah. or just, you know. Escapee barbecuing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It does, um, yeah. 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 The songs of mirth have become mourning and weeping. Oh. You know? it's Yeah. That's a powerful statement. That, and, yeah. And, and the men cursing the names of the dwarves now. How, yeah, how quickly they've how turned quickly on the dwarves, indeed. you know? Yeah. Never mind that it's, you know, Smaug who's burning your place yeah. down and not Thorin, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. They did wake him up, in theory. This is This is why Bilbo should feel bad, isn't it? Remember we talked about how oh, yeah, horribly Bilbo felt, how Bilbo realizing, felt, yeah. Oh, and this is why what he'd unleashed by angering Smaug to this point by taking that cup. Mm-hmm. You know, of course he regrets. And that. then by you know, everything oh, by, after that, you know, yeah, kind of the, taunting him and the, the taunt was unnecessary. Yeah. So somebody throws a flag in the play. Fifteen yards, unsportsmanlike <laughs> conduct, taunting number fourteen, offense. Yeah. No, no ref for this one. Smaug just takes it into his own hands. Seriously. Which would make it a lot more interesting on the football field. If, oh, wouldn't it? That would yeah. be interesting. Unsportsmanlike yeah. conduct was rewarded with just, you know, flaming the other team. Flamethrower <laughs> granted to, uh, oh boy, that could be. I think there was a, there was a, a game, a video game that, that kind of had that. Mutant League football. Oh, I really? Had a kind of stuff like that where you had like, you know, brutal tackles. Like would, weapons and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You had all sorts of fun. You know, crazy stuff. This is back in the day when a, a gory game was just like, oh, hey, there's some red pixels there next to the gray right. pixels <laughs> that are supposedly representing my man. Yeah. I mean, these days, a, a mutant league football. Now you, it, you would actually see actual yeah. gore and severed limbs. And pieces. Things. It would be terrible. Yeah. Terrible stuff. I couldn't, I couldn't buy it. Or at least I couldn't play it around my kids. Right. Anyway, <laughs> Mutant League football. I'm gonna have. There are too many things I got to include in the show notes. You, you do have to go and find some uh, <laughs> some stuff for uh, for, yeah. this, for the show notes on this. I absolutely do. I'm, so, writing, I'm writing down Mutant League football to look into. Good. I'm one. glad you did. And don't forget Burninator. Um, yep. <laughs> so, you know, Smelk wants to burn everything down. Um, he's literally taking a scorched earth approach. To this quite literally you yeah. know i mean it, in the most literal sense he can he wants to burn everything the shoreland mm-hmm. woods the fields the pastures and again all of this over a stolen cup yeah and it's all i mean we you know we talked about we've joked about the sport of town baiting and stuff but it sure. really is all a game to him and um and again it, it reminds me again of glaurung do you remember when um when glaurung was destroying nargathron it said he turned to his own pleasure yeah, and burned yes. all about him yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. We were kind of like, well, now I've done my boss's bidding, so now exactly. I can do what he, I want. He kind of did the he did Morgoth's errand by you know casting the spell on Turin, and then Turin ran off to go do some damage in yep. his own way, and then Glaurung <laughs> in his own <laughs> unique Turinish ways. <laughs> you do you, Turin. <laughs> that's right. You do, do you. you. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then after that, Glaurung turned to his own pleasure and then set yeah. fire to. To the town, it's uh, yeah. There's, there's a, a sadistic uh, kind of glee that the that the dragons get from this. Yeah, 
Okay, so I think you've got the next reading, but before we get there, we're not going to tackle this this paragraph, but there's a little bit here about Bard. It, it tells us um, that he's the captain of the archers, and mm-hmm. it, not only does he have a grim voice, he also has a grim face, so he would probably be a really good podcaster. Um, <laughs> but he's also descended in long line from Girion. Now, that's important, because remember, we yeah. talked last time about the Necklace of Girion and the Gem of Girion, so it's very right. interesting stuff. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, really, that's just all there is to be said about that. But you've got the next reading. And boy, is it a good one. It, it is a good one. And I think it's, it is important that we get that introduction of exactly where, where Bard mm-hmm. comes from. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. He's not just some guy. Zaphod's just some guy. He's not just some guy, you know. Because <laughs> um, if he was, then this next thing would not work yeah, as well as you're it right. Does. It wouldn't. Um, and by the way, I just realized that I'm about to read a thrush voice here. So oh, yeah, we'll yeah. See how that goes. I'll be very interested to hear your thrush voice. <laughs> So will I. Okay, here we go. Suddenly, out of the dark, something fluttered to his shoulder. He started, but it was only an old thrush. Unafraid, it perched by his ear, and it brought him news. Marveling, he found he could understand its tongue, for he was of the race of Dale. Wait! Wait! It said to him. The moon is rising. Look for the hollow of the left breast as he flies and turns above you. And while Bard paused in wonder, it told him of tidings up in the mountain and of all that it had heard. Then Bard drew his bowstring to his ear. The dragon was circling back, flying low, and as he came, the moon rose above the eastern shore and silvered his great wings. Arrow, said the bowman, black arrow, I have saved you to the last. You have never failed me, and always I have recovered you. I had you from my father and he from of old. If ever you came from the forges of the true king under the mountain, go now and speed well. Mm. Wow. Well, let me just say I'll end up picking up where you left off, and then you're going to pick up where I leave off. This is a section yeah. where we're reading like every word for <laughs> we a gotta, bit. we got to read a, a good bit here, yeah. Oh, this is some amazing stuff. Yeah. Uh, down to one arrow. And none of the arrows mm-hmm. before have done any good, so you're kind of like, well... I mean, I, what else am I going to do Here's with Here's my thing? special one. I guess I'll try this one. Yeah, might as well. Yeah. But the old thrush lands and speaks. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should talk about this a little bit. Uh, yeah, maybe Shouldn't we should. Maybe we should. <laughs> so we talked, uh, yeah. was it two episodes ago? Yeah, it was 79. We were 79, talking about... Yeah. Um, we talked about whether... I, uh, I, I had made the comment that he must have been speaking Dalish. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was thinking that Bard just understood the thrush's yeah. language. He just so understood let's, thrush let's, language. We're going to cover a little bit of, we're, we're going to peel the curtain back a little bit and let you see some of what we talked about in our <laughs> postscript. You know, we, yeah. we do the Patreon postscript every time, uh, but this is enough of an issue that, though they got to hear it two weeks ago, uh, you're hearing it now, uh, yeah. and, and we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about what we talked about then. We just heard that the the thrush brought him news. Marveling, mm-hmm. he found he could understand its tongue, for he was of the race of Dale. Now, first things first, let's get something clear. That last pronoun that he was of the race of Dale, that is still referring to bard, not to the thrush, right? I mean, sure, yeah, bird. He's a bird. Um, yeah. So all of those he's are are, are bard. Right. But that means that bard's ability to understand the thrush is genetic in nature. It's genetically transmitted because he is of the race of Dale. Now, to me. It seems entirely impossible for language reception to be encoded in a person's DNA. That's totally opposite of the real world. 
And because there's no further explanation from Tolkien, I ended up concluding and still kind of do that the thrush, well, okay, maybe I don't. But (laughs) I wanted to conclude. I really, really tried to conclude that the thrush was speaking some sort of clicky-tweety form of Dalish. Right. And that's I, I can understand how you got there. And I did yeah. say that in the postscript, too. And and I think, you know, this, this he was of the race of Dale doesn't give us a clear answer. No. But I think the, the language he could understand its tongue does. Yeah. You know, I, I give you that. I, I think um, its tongue is clearly a reference to its language. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that has to mean the thrush's language. I think if it had been something else. I would think it would have said something like Bard could understand its message or something like right, that. Right, right, right. Um, and so this I think this. Or something, yeah. yeah, right. And so I think could understand its tongue is meant to fit with the information Thorin gave us in uh, two yeah, chapters ago. A couple chapters that, back. That the men of Dale used to have the trick of understanding the thrush's language. Right, right. So I was just kind of taking it literally, just thinking he's just un- the, he the just have a language. thrush language. Right. Yeah. Now, I mean. Clearly, the thrush does understand Westron because well, yeah. it it heard the conversation between Bilbo, Bilbo and Smaug. speaking thrushish, right? So, exactly, right. and so it understood that, and uh, and so it, it must have known that. But I think when it speaks to Bard, it's it's speaking in thrushish. Maybe thrushish, <laughs> maybe it can <laughs> understand Westron, but it can't actually. You know, I think we even talked about you know whether it has the anatomy yeah. to to speak exactly. Westron. You can't mechanically it probably, reproduce probably that doesn't. language. No, but I think it understands the Westron language and it speaks to Bard in some thrush language. It's a thrush. It can't. It can't. It can't do a voiced fricative. It can't do. You know. <laughs> right. Right. It simply doesn't have the articulatory <laughs> no. mechanisms to no. make to make. Uh, it's our got sounds. a beak, not lips, dude. It can't. Just can't do it. <laughs> that would be. I would love to see somebody do a study on whether a thrush <laughs> could speak English or Westron or anything. Well, you know, actually, I just realized, I mean, birds certainly, I mean, th- look at parrots and how well they mock, uh, you know, how well they can uh, oh, that's you know, a good copy point. humans uh, in that what they say. That is a good point. Their speech sounds pretty clear. That is sometimes. a good point. And don't we have some birds speaking later on in, uh, ah, in yes. this book? Yes, we do. And we've already had some birds. Well, we've speaking, had the eagles speak, but right, they yeah. were a little different. Yeah, 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 that's true. Anyway, the the reason that I, I really always thought that Bard was understanding thrush language is because yeah. I think Tolkien, one of Tolkien's bones for the story here, is an event in the Volsunga saga, uh, which is the story of Sigurd, the slayer of the dragon Fafnir. In that story, Sigurd kills the dragon, and then after the dragon's dead, he's roasting its heart so that oh. his foster father foster father can eat it. And I, I don't have time to go into all of that. But um, as he's roasting the dragon's heart, he burns his finger and then he just kind of, you know, puts it to his mouth the way you would if you burned mm-hmm. your finger. And then he actually he accidentally tastes the dragon's blood. And then after he does that, he gains the power to understand bird speech. And then he learns that his foster father is going to kill him. And again, I really don't have time to go into all that. Sure, but, sure. So obviously the details are very different here. You know, Tolkien doesn't ever take anything. Um, and just, you know, add it to his to No, his, no, he uh, always modifies material. it. He always yeah. modifies it. But I think that Tolkien is trying to call up this idea of a dragon slayer that understands bird speech. And and that's why I kind of, I just kind of always gravitated yeah. towards that. Well, and, um, and that, that certainly, with that additional piece of knowledge that I didn't remember, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're probably, <clears throat> yeah. I'm just going to leave it there. I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> I think you did a good job on this analysis, Sean. I really did. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. And and we, unfortunately, we don't have a sound clip of you emphatically telling me how right I am. No, and I will do my best to make sure we never have said sound clip. <laughs> <laughs>
as you just now did. No, that's that's good. Um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Genetic language acquisition is not scientifically sound. Well, no, it's no. you know, it, but uh, I mean, it is something Tolkien played around with in some of his other works. And See, I think that's it's the thing. I didn't I didn't remember that until you until oh, yeah. you mentioned it. That, that yeah, that's well, if you look at stuff played around with. Yeah, if you look at um, like the Notion Club papers is the one yeah, I'm really thinking that's of. Right. And I think I think also the Lost Road. Um, but the Notion Club papers basically has uh, descendants of Numenor yeah. learning the Adonaic language in their sleep, basically because yeah. it's in their blood. Yeah. So um, now, obviously, that never got finished. Well, but no. um, but, but it's a concept that he was okay with, right? He was he was kind of interested in, you know. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, and I think I said this in the postscript. I think this is just one of those green sun moments. I think Tolkien's yeah. just. He knows it's not possible, but he's he's writing about it in a way that's consistent and believable. So yeah, that's it where does, I landed. It on does it. maintain inconsistency. Yeah, yeah, that's Very where I cool. landed on it, and I think I've almost convinced you now. After almost, almost <laughs> after telling you this twice, I still struggle with the whole idea of the uh, it's somehow in his DNA. But all right, I'll buy it for now. I know, I know. It's <laughs> it's it, what, what did we say the last time around? Uh, his his world, his rules. Yes, his world, his rules. You're absolutely right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read the next couple of paragraphs. Very dramatic, short, but uh, but very key moment. The dragon swooped once more, lower than ever. And as he turned and dived down, his belly glittered white with sparkling fires of gems in the moon. But not in one place. The great bow twanged. The black arrow sped straight from the string, straight for the hollow by the left breast where the foreleg was flung wide. In it smote and vanished, barb, shaft, and feather, so fierce was its flight. With a shriek that deafened men, felled trees and split stone, Smaug shot spouting into the air, turned over, and crashed down from on high in ruin. Full on the town he fell. His last throws splintered it to sparks and gleeds. The lake roared in. A vast steam leaped up, white in the sudden dark under the moon. There was a hiss, a gushing whirl, and then silence. And that was the end of Smaug and Esgaroth, but not of Bard. <laughs> I love the way he ends that. I do, too. Well, especially because that, that is a change uh, yeah, from right. stuff earlier in the book, uh, earlier in the, the process, I should say, or, you know, his manuscripts. In fact, let's go back a little bit, style this back a little bit, that in mm-hmm. the previous versions of the story, Bilbo was going to be the one who slew Smaug. Right. So we talked about how Tolkien had to create Bard kind right. of out of whole cloth, right? He had to give the role of Dragon Slayer to somebody who was already in the book or create a new character out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, yeah. Which is, well, let's put into what he did. So yeah. Ratliff tells us, and I'm going to quote from him, he says, initially he planned to kill off this character as soon as his role of Dragon Slayer was achieved. Only two pages of manuscript separate his first appearance and his death in the ruin of Esgaroth, crushed beneath the dragon's fall. Before proceeding any further, however, Tolkien thought better of it and changed the line, and that was the end of Smaug and Esgaroth and Bard, to the end of Smaug and Esgaroth, but not of Bard, as significant a change within such a small space of words as he achieved anywhere within the book. Boy, you're not, you're not kidding about that. And... Yeah. And really, by having Bard survive, and mm-hmm. then more importantly, by having him be a descendant of Geryon, as we exactly. talked about a little while ago, Tolkien yeah. ended up having to change a lot more. Oh, yeah. So um, so this is also uh, from Ratliff. It says, Before the introduction of Bard, 
None of the outsiders described in the plot notes who descend upon the mountain after Smaug's death have any legitimate claim on the treasure there. Certainly not the Elven King, who imprisoned the dwarves for months in solitary no. confinement, merely for trespassing. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, right? Just trespassing. We're going to put you in prison for a long time for trespassing. How dare you starve in our woods? That's right. So loudly interrupting yeah. our party. <laughs> right. Nor are the men of Lake Town, although certainly due generous recompense for all their aid in the dwarves' time of need, much of their sorry state having been due to the elves' mistreatment, it must be said. <laughs> True. Entitled thereby to any significant portion of Thorin's inheritance. But now, somebody actually has a legitimate yeah. claim. Bard, That's right. now as an heir of Geryon, has a claim on any wealth that you know came from Geryon that's mixed in mm-hmm. with that horde. Yeah, and, and Geryon's wealth, which would have been presumably a lot of Dale's wealth. Right, right. Uh, that's mixed exactly. in. Right. That's right. And, and plus he speaks for Lake Town's claim for recompense for all the damage. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, oh, yeah. he's the guy <laughs> who has killed the dragon and deserves <laughs> the reward. So... Absolutely. Yeah. Dragon Slayer right here. Hero. Yeah. Hero. I, I should get a piece of that pie. Um, Without me, you would not have any of this. That's correct. You would You would all be just toast. You'd be literally yeah. toast. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Bard also represents a really interesting turning point in the Legendarium. Uh, this was something that I kind of had a feeling on. I, I, I saw him a little bit as this Return of the King role, this kind of precursor of Aragorn. Sure, yeah. But Ratliff really really fleshes this out quite a bit here. He says that a dispossessed heir, he lives to achieve unexpected victory over the surpassingly strong hereditary foe who had destroyed his homeland, reestablishes the kingship, founds a dynasty that renews alliances with non-human neighbors, Mm -hmm. and helps bring renewed prosperity to the region. In short, he is a precursor of Strider, Aragorn, who, through his own efforts and the great deeds of others, claims his ancestor's throne, reestablishes his kingdom. All that's lacking is the love story, which he points out is a relatively late element of Aragorn's story, and then concludes that Bard is thus a pivotal figure, a turning point between the tragic figures of the First Age and the triumphant returning king of Volume 3 of The Lord of the Rings. I think that is absolutely spot on, yeah. Because until then, all the men that we saw were tragic characters. Hurin and Turin. Yeah. I mean, they just... Baron, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe less so, but he still yeah, did but, basically die. Yeah, yeah. Twice. He, twice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one more than any of us get a shot at. Right, but, right. You know, that it's not he didn't re, he didn't establish a kingdom, right? right I mean he right. ends up living on an That's island. That's true. There wasn't this restorative figure. No. Um, this um Yeah, and I think that's really key because, you know, as I've talked about a few times before, you know, the idea that the entire legendarium is the story of how the human race came to have dominion over Earth. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that we talk about ennoblement and and all that stuff. And I think Bard is an early example of of one of these ennobled men. Um, Bard shows us uh, how men are starting to come into their own as heroes. And even though he's a Northman and not a Numenorean, he does have a lot in common with Aragorn and with that concept of a noble of an ennobled man, mm-hmm. and I think I think all that's really key because I mean, what he, what Tolkien is doing here is really breaking the rules about you know yeah. as Radliff yeah. pointed out you know he, from when he's introduced to when he basically solves the major problem of the book um, is two pages. Yeah. Nowadays, right. you know, I mean, if you read a book or if you watched a movie that introduced a character out of nowhere and then had him basically resolve the plot for you, you, I mean, you <laughs> yeah, would not. Right. You would, you would not react. You wouldn't take it seriously. Yeah, you'd be like, you know, you you just would not react well to that. No. You know, who is this guy? Where did he suddenly come from? Well, 
Tolkien actually tells you where he comes from, why he's able to do this. And, and I think that's why it works. I think you're right. I think that's exactly why this works. Um, you know, we also have, I mean, that was kind of a sidebar on Bard, but we also have a sidebar on the Black Arrow, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> I right. mean, Did I just you? realized, I'm like, wow, we've got these two lengthy bits. And, um, but I want you to talk a little bit about this because you found some stuff from the Lay of the Children of Hurin. Yeah, there's an interesting similarity here to something from that, um, which is a, a poem we go back to as often as we can because we love reading <laughs> yeah. alliterative verse and it's our favorite. Yeah. Um, these bits are actually from Canto Two, and this is when Beleg and Gwyndor, who was then called Flinding, um, were trying to rescue Turin from the orcs. It says, Then Dilir he drew, his dart beloved, how so far fared it or fell unnoted, unsought he found it with sound feathers and barbs unbroken. Wow. So, I mean, that's like the predecessor to the Black Arrow, right? Exactly, there. yeah. You know, he always finds it no matter where it goes. Uh, even if he drops it and doesn't know it, he's able to find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much like the Black Arrow. And it's just like the Black Arrow. It is fated to be, well, lost <laughs> at a crucial moment. If you want to <laughs> yeah. call yeah. burying the, the arrow in your target lost. Um, this is from later on in that same canto. There the huntsman's hand was hurt deeply as he groped on the ground by a gleaming point. "'Twas Dilir his dart dearly prized, "'he had found by his foot in fragments twain, "'and with barbs bended, it broke at last, "'neath his body falling, it boded ill.'" Hmm. It did bode ill, because that shortly after that is when Beleg gets slain by, by Turin, um, you know, accident, not accidentally, but unintentionally. Right, um, right. And so, sure enough, the, the loss of the arrow is a, a foreboding thing. Now, fortunately, Bard was a bit more fortunate. The loss of his arrow actually marks the slaying of the greatest enemy of his people. Right, so, right. Um, but in both it's, cases— lost, though. He doesn't yeah. get it back. <laughs> yeah, in both cases, you've got this idea of an, an arrow that you you always get back. Yeah. As improbable as that you know, would seem for an arrow, but it's yeah. you know, obviously a special unless you're arrow. In an, unless you're playing an RPG, which you just need to always have your arrows back. Right, so <laughs> it's true. Never run out. But uh, but yeah, in this case, you know, it, they they always find this arrow until the time that they don't, and yeah, and as you say, for for uh, for Beleg, it, it doesn't end well. It's uh, almost uh, <laughs> it almost seems to be foreshadowing his own death, whereas mm, Bard mm-hmm. is is a great deal more fortunate. Yeah, yeah, much more. Uh, uh, there's another observation that that John Ratliff had that I'll just mention pretty quickly. But this idea sure. of the weapon slaying a monster—it's not an arrow. But a weapon that slays the great monster and then is lost. Uh, this is also in Beowulf. Oh, that's right. In uh, and I'll go ahead and read from Ratliff here. It says, "In the battle with Grendel's dam, Beowulf find and that's Grendel's mother. Right. Uh, Beowulf finds that the sword he has brought cannot harm the monster, but he is able to slay her and to cut off Grendel's head with an ancient sword he finds within her lair. This, why did I agree to say this? This <laughs> Eldsword Etnish, literally old Entish wow. sword, wow. then melts away." leaving only the hilt behind. In any case, like Bard himself in the original draft, the Black Arrow is no sooner introduced than it fulfills its role in slaying the seemingly invulnerable dragon and leaves the story. I'd forgotten about that sword, but yeah, it just melts away with just the hilt. It's mm-hmm. uh, like the, the blades of Mordor. Like there, the Morgul Blade, yeah. Like the Morgul right. Blade, yeah. Very powerful stuff. Not like the Morgul Arrow. <laughs> there was no Morgul Arrow. <laughs> <laughs> the less we speak of that, the I, better. I had to. I had to go there just because arrows and anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. I went there, and I'm sorry I did. Now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, immediate regret. 
We file that with immediate regret. So maybe we should get back to the text now. I think, think we probably should get back to back to the text. I love that violence in the death that we get here. I mean, this the shriek that deafened men, felled trees, and split stone. Oh yeah, this is unbelievable. That's intense. Yeah, yeah. And he falls. And then you know, he, yeah. Right on the when town. he falls, he then you know throws around for a little while, destroying it. The the, the mm-hmm. rest of the town. The town's gone now. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's a word here that I I had to ask you to to talk to us about because gleeds is not a word that most people will run into on a daily basis. No, it's it's not a word that you're going to use on a crowded bus. It's no. um, uh, so I got a little word nerdery on it. It is. <laughs> I hope not. You might use it on a crowded. <laughs> no, bus. No, I would not. No, you'll get funny looks. So this is <laughs> gleed is an archaic word meaning a glowing coal or ember. Uh, it's hmm. it's related to the word glow actually. Okay. Um, and. Does It is in some modern dictionaries with the spelling G-L-E-E-D, but mm-hmm. Tolkien uses it with the spelling G-L-E-D-E twice, um, both here and also in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, there's a mention of, of a gleed in Isildur's description oh. of the One Ring. Um, remember? Oh, yeah. 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 Do you remember Gandalf? I had was, forgotten about that. Yeah. I, I, I know. I, I, I found it thanks to some help from one of my favorite word nerd books, Ring of Words. Ah, of course. The Ring of Words. <laughs> Yes. Hey, I, I, it was hot when I, I first took it. it, hot as a gleed in my, and my hand. My hand was scorched. scorched so that I doubt if I ever again shall be if ever again free I shall be pain. free of the pain of it. Yep. It's like picking up a, a charcoal briquette from the bottom of your, you know, yeah, barbecue. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and this and this burning just just stuck with him when he picked up the mm. ring. So um so yeah, twice Tolkien uses the word gleed. Um the Ring of Words actually suggests that maybe uh, Tolkien, oh, I've got the quote here, it says, Tolkien perhaps deliberately favored an archaic-looking spelling of this word, which sure. in Isildur's account of the ring fits well with other old word forms such as seemeth and loseth. Um, oh, that's true, yeah. So probably just spelling it differently as an archaism, really no explanation of why he did that in The Hobbit, but, you know, he, he does use these general archaisms sometimes, mm-hmm. so I think that's he probably does. what's going on there. And, and they work. They really do. Yeah, they do. do. They give the text that sense of um, that sense of remoteness, yes, and age. I agree. Well, Esgaroth is no more; mm-hmm. uh, it is destroyed. Um, what a moment this is, right? I mean, you've got the one arrow that finds its way, and it only gets shot by this one guy who only he could have shot it this way, mm-hmm. and only he could have heard. It makes me think there was Olson did a quote on this. Uh, this okay. is from uh, Exploring J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. So I'll, I'll pull this up and then we'll chat a little bit about okay, luck yeah. and fate because I think this talks about that in a way that it really brings that to the fore. So he says, because the dwarves in The Hobbit were standing by the gray stone on Durin's day, the secret door was opened. Because Bilbo entered the tunnel and faced the dragon and escaped, the thrush knows of Smaug's weak spot. Because Bard is of the blood of Dale, he can understand the thrush's speech. Because Bard is brave and steadfast, he stands alone amidst the burning ruins of his town, ready to shoot his last arrow. Because the black arrow did indeed come from the forges of the true king under the mountain, it flies true. The shaft of fate strikes home and sinks into the heart of the dragon, barb, shaft, and feather. Wow. The improbability of this is off the charts. Yeah. It's just it's, <laughs> I mean, it's one of things. highly improbable event after another. Yes. It's like the heart of gold has been flying around Erebor. <laughs> <laughs> leaving the you know, infinite improbability drive. Yeah, leaving bowls of petunias and yeah. and, and you know and whales falling whales to their deaths. falling from the atmosphere, yeah, top of yeah. the atmosphere. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> this is really that crazy. Is hilarious stuff to and a very good catch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's true. I mean, there's just all these improbable things, and they just yeah. they just keep stacking up. And every, I mean, that probability is just going. The improbability yeah. is just going through the roof. We are now at an, inf- an improbability <laughs> yeah. level of 10 to negative 173 <laughs> and counting. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and it, I, I think what this does, though, is it just serves to reemphasize the importance of the role of luck. Yeah. You know, throughout the book, we've been talking about luck over and over, and it shows up so many times. And here we kind of see a culmination yeah. of a series of events that uh, that that each one seems unlikely on their own, but the fact that they've all taken place really points to the outside hand uh, yeah. of Iluvatar working his uh, working his objectives here. Yeah, but I think the key thing to remember is that, um, as we've talked about many times, that's not enough. It's no. you know just just relying on luck or this is faded or. You know, this mm-hmm. is going to be taken care of by a Yeah, Luvatar. we can't take it's, that passivity not, of the prophecy. No, right? no, you can't. You can't be like the Lake Towners. You have to step up and actually do something. Bilbo yeah. had to enter the had tunnel face and face the dragon, the dragon and escape. Um, yeah. You know, he, Bilbo had to tease the information out of Smaug so that the thrush yeah. could get the information. Um, That's right. Bard has to, has to be brave and steadfast and, you know, and strike exactly. true. Has to stand there instead it's, of run. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, it, it, you do get that interplay of luck and fate with the free will of heroes, mm. and uh, I think it is really, really prominent here. Boy, it sure is. And that, the more you think about how often that theme shows up, the more intriguing it is, really. Yeah. Because that doesn't seem like the obvious thing that, that Tolkien's trying to do here in The Hobbit, but it really does become the overwhelming central theme. Yeah, it does. I think that's why I got so frustrated with the films. The more I think about it, the more, even at the time, I don't yeah. know that I was thinking of it consciously, but that elimination of that, um, of, of that of, centrality. Of, of, yeah, yeah, of, and of that, and changing discussion. it into something very deliberately different. Yeah, but interesting stuff. Episode well, fifty-one is where we. <laughs> yeah, yep, that was good. Spend some time talking about that one. We certainly will. And, and just even the change in the last scene, the last uh, lines of the book, uh, mm-hmm. which, boy, again, yeah, there's another true. quote that I can't wait till we get to. Yeah. That's just yeah. like the Thorn quote. That's a good one. Um, well, let's take a look here. You've got, again, you're picking up exactly where I left off. We're going to talk a little bit about the aftermath. And, boy, it's a sad scene, isn't it? It really is. All right. Let me go ahead and get started here. The waxing moon rose higher and higher, and the wind grew loud and cold. I'm sorry, was it a waxing gibbous? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was waxing gibbons. Oh, it just won't sit still. Goodness. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just right. that, that every time I, I see that now, I think of that, that the line. Waxing you said, moon. The waxing yep. gibbons. The waxing moon rose higher and higher, and the wind grew loud and cold. It twisted the white fog into bending pillars and hurrying clouds, and drove it off to the west to scatter in tattered shreds over the marshes before Mirkwood. Then the many boats could be seen, dotted dark on the surface of the lake, and down the wind came the voices of the people of Esgaroth, lamenting their lost town and goods and ruined houses. But they had really much to be thankful for, had they thought of it, though it could hardly be expected that they should just then. Three-quarters of the people of the town had at least escaped alive. Their woods and fields and pastures and cattle, and most of their boats remained undamaged, and the dragon was dead. What that meant they had not yet realized. 
they gathered in mournful crowds upon the western shores, shivering in the cold wind, and their first complaints and anger were against the master, who had left the town so soon while some were still willing to defend it. Well, of course he did. He had the gilded boat. Yeah. He had to get out of Dodge, man. Yeah, you're not kidding. Um, <laughs> Three-quarters of the people had at least escaped alive. It, I, I love how he's able to couch a really tragedy terrible as tragedy posi- as something positive. As a positive. Yeah. Focusing I mean, on what they have to be thankful for. Yeah. 25% of the town is dead. Yeah. That's a pretty heavy toll. Oh, yeah. Um, and no wonder they're mourning. No wonder they're weeping. No wonder they're mad at the master. Yeah. Um, and even though he does spin that into a positive, Olson points out, and he's right, uh, that unlike the earlier events, the, the really scary things or frightening things or sad things, where Tolkien had this tendency to inject humor. I mean, think about the trolls or the yeah. goblins or uh, all There's of these things. There's none of that here, yeah. There's none of that here. And, and Olson says that after this, we are given no such padding of the emotional blow. Um, and he's right. He, he goes yeah. on to point out that the story is moving on to happy endings, but sorrow will always be near to it now. Yeah. The joy of the good resolution will be tempered, as it always is in Tolkien's fiction, with the reality of human suffering. Yeah. He's right. We, we see a tone difference now. From this point to the rest of the book, there is a difference in tone. Yeah. There um, definitely. I think we'll see. A there definitely is. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that tempering is, is really important. I'm thinking of the, the guilt that Bilbo feels. At, at, yes, you know, absolutely. At what, he's, what he's kind of allowed to happen through his and sort of... And yet if he hadn't done that, yeah, Smaug and, wouldn't be dead. Right. And you that's know, why I, mean, I think it's... And that's why I think this is such an interesting passage because everything you said is true. Uh, he does focus on the suffering. That suffering will always be there. But then he does focus on, you know, what they have to be thankful for. Yeah. Um, uh, the three quarters are alive. Okay, that's not great. That's terrible. That's twenty five percent dead. Yeah. But you know, their woods, their fields, their pastures, their cattle, yeah. their boats. Um, you know, their 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 way of life, their their way of making a living is yeah. You know, mostly undamaged. The town itself is gone, the, but their fields where they grow their right. food and their cattle and all that. They, right. They so they can start smell. over, is what we're being told. And the dragon yeah. is dead now. So. There is some and good that, there. And that's a good thing. <laughs> that is a very good thing. And I like yes, that Tolkien is. focuses on that. But it is it is very interesting the way he is able to couch that, the, the tragedy in that positivity. And so you can see it kind of both ways. You yeah. should see it both ways. Yeah, you really should. You're right. So they complain against the master. I love these townspeople. And then they, they start praising Bard. But, you know, it's too bad he's dead. Yeah. Uh, Until he's not. I'm not dead. <laughs> not quite dead. I feel, I feel better. Fine. <laughs> and you notice, you notice how they're all mourning that he's dead, and he walks up with his black hair hanging in his face. Does that remind you of anybody else? Oh, Turin. It does. It does remind me a little bit of to the drenched water. Yeah. 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 And you're right. After they thought that that he had been dead. Yeah, because they're you know that all the people good. of uh, of uh, Brethel. Yeah, they uh, Brethel. Yeah, they were. They all, thought that he had died. Of yeah, course, as died everybody else had. Right. Uh, in trying to um, take down Clown. It's I don't think there's anything to it. I just think Tolkien has it's Tolkien kinda had this trope in mind when he's describing the dragon slayer who's you know who's, who's survived against dead. all odds. He's not quite dead. Um, <laughs> he's only mostly dead. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> so uh, have have fun storming the have, castle have a good time or the mountain the in this case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, Miracle Max. I'm going to go ahead and read the next little bit here. This is the master's response okay. uh, to everybody chant, you know, chanting for King Bard. <laughs> and we'll see some of his absolutely brilliant political um, savvy here. Kyrian was Lord of Dale, not King of Esgaroth, he said. In the Lake Town we have always elected masters from among the old and wise, and have not endured the rule of mere fighting men. Let King Bard go back to his own kingdom. Dale is now freed by his valour, and nothing hinders his return. Any that wish can go with him, if they prefer the cold stones under the shadow of the mountain to the green shores of the lake. The wise will stay here, and hope to rebuild our town, and enjoy again in time its peace and riches. We will have King Bard, the people near at hand shouted in reply. We have had enough of the old men and the money counters. And people further off took up the cry. Up the bowmen and down with money bags, till the clamor echoed along the shore. Um, I am the last man to undervalue Bard the bowman, said the master warily, for Bard now stood close beside him. He has tonight earned an eminent place in the role of the benefactors of our town, and he is worthy of many imperishable songs. But why, O oh people, and here the master rose to his feet and spoke very loud and clear, why do I get all your blame? For what fault am I to be deposed? Who aroused the dragon from his slumber, I might ask? Who obtained of us rich gifts and ample help, and led us to believe that old songs could come true? Who played on our soft hearts and our pleasant fancies? What sort of gold have they sent down the river to reward us? Dragon fire and ruin! From whom should we claim the recompense of our damage, and aid for our widows and orphans. Well, as you see, the master had not got his position for nothing. The result of his words was that, for the moment, the people quite forgot their idea of a new king, and turned their angry thoughts towards Thorin and his company. Wild and bitter words were shouted from many sides, and some of those who had before sung the old songs loudest were now heard as loudly crying that the dwarves had stirred the dragon up against them deliberately. <laughs> Oh, my. Oh, the master. Oh, he and he is a master here, isn't <laughs> he, is, he? He, is he? He is a master manipulator. He is He's a master manipulator. He's such a good politician. Um, you know, he, he immediately <laughs> backpedals, tries to... What a, you know, I actually, they, I, I, was, I started... He, I, I had to not... I had to laugh very quietly when you yeah. first started reading that. Because when he's talking about how, you know, Girion was Lord of Dale, not King of Esgaroth, and yeah. in the Lake Town we've always oh. elected masters, I was yeah. just thinking, we take it in turns to act as a sort of executive <laughs> officer for the week. <laughs> it's like he could have, he, he know, really could, yeah. yeah. Dennis, the, the socialist peasant, could have, uh, could have learned <laughs> a thing or two from him. Oh, that is good stuff. <laughs> but, but no, he is such a politician. I mean, oh, he really is. And, and it's great, you know, when Bard is standing close beside him. He's, yeah, he's suddenly, he changes his tune a little whoa, whoa, bit. I'm, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk that. I'm going to walk that him. back a little bit. I'm yeah, gonna, right. You know, let me let me let me restate that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's it's almost like he finally gets the idea. You know, at first it's him against Bard, and he realizes I have to try to get these people to to, to believe me and not not Bard it's because they're yeah because they're already leaning towards him. So I have right. To so he's a little desperate, but then he remembers. But why? And that's when he rose to his feet and spoke very loud and clear. So mm -hmm. to me, it's, it, it speaks of that that's when he finally realized, oh, I could just blame this on the dwarves instead. Right. Yeah. And so he starts to do what every master manipulative politician does, mm -hmm. create a scapegoat. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and in this case, it's it's the dwarves. Oh, not entirely without merit, really. (laughs) Well, no, that is true. But, I mean, again, remember that when the dwarves were there, the people were very ready to support them. They were all ready to to give Thorne whatever he needed. Oh, yeah. And and the master, too. Again, once Mm -hmm. he saw the people were leaning that way. Yeah. Um, You know, when they thought they had something to get out of it. But, of course, now that their town has been destroyed, it's, you know... Quite oh yeah, he, it was all about what they were going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Remember when he sent them off? He was basically he was you know, counting, relying on their count, on their counting the generosity money and yeah. yeah, yeah. And I love the narrator's comment that the master had not get as you see the master had yes. not got his position for nothing. Like it's even a little break, another fourth wall break, isn't it? As it is. you see, he's directly addressing the reader. It is, and he's and he's showing us like this is this is the kind of slick talk that got the master where he is, and yeah, and you see he's how good. effective this can be. He's very very good. Mm-hmm. But Bard, Bard, interestingly, d- does not. He, he actually is is kind of suckered into this a little bit too, right? He starts to think of Dale rebuilt he's, he's, and filled yeah. with golden bells, as the text says. Yeah, yeah, he does. I and guess nobody's but, immune. <laughs> no, 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 it's true. Nobody is immune. And um, the, I mean, the one thing that Bard kind of does a little different is just kind of like, hey. Let up on the dwarves. They're probably dead already, you know. Yeah, that's true. They're but, toast. Um, they're gone. But, yeah, I mean, he's definitely thinking about, you know, what he can get out of this and mm-hmm. himself becoming king. I mean, this is the first time we've seen – well, we've only known him for a few pages. But this is the mm-hmm. first time we've seen him really have any interest in actually being this king that people are calling him. I, I'm sure part of it is, you know, I, I can't go be king of Dale because, well, dragon. Um, right. But, yeah, now true. that he has that opportunity, he's saying, look, I'll, I still serve you. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I may actually take you up on that offer and mm-hmm. go north. Yep. Interesting. So he goes to, to kind of help organize things, right, to take, you know, get the camps put together, get yep. uh, the sick folks and the wounded folks taken care of. The master just sits on his backside <laughs> oh, yeah. and calls for fire and food. Yeah. Typical. Very soft. As opposed Very. to, again, as opposed to, you know, Bard, the hero. Oh, yeah. The, 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 Captain the of the archers. A, and, yeah. yeah. The difference between a king and a master. Very much so. I think it's very clear here. It is. And I'm going to have you read the next couple paragraphs. Okay. Now everywhere Bard went, he found talk running like fire among the people concerning the vast treasure that was now unguarded. Men spoke of the recompense for all their harm that they would soon get from it, and wealth over and to spare with which to buy rich things from the south. Or goodies. Or goodies from the south. (laughs) You remembered that, huh? (laughs) I did. And it cheered them greatly in their plight. That was as well, for the night was bitter and miserable. Shelters could be contrived for few. The master had one. And there was little food. Even the master went short. Many took ill of wet and cold and sorrow that night, and afterwards died, who had escaped uninjured from the ruin of the town. And in the days that followed there was much sickness and great hunger. Meanwhile, Bard took the lead, and ordered things as he wished, though always in the master's name and he had a hard task to govern the people and direct the preparations for their protection and housing. Probably most of them would have perished in the winter that now hurried after autumn, if help had not been to hand. But help came swiftly, for Bard at once had speedy messengers sent up the river to the forest to ask the aid of the king of the elves of the wood, and these messengers had found a host already on the move, although it was then only the third day after the fall of Smaug. Hmm, already on the move, it's like, eh? It's like, uh, wait, why Why are you guys coming? What, yeah, what, what, what have you, you heard? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what do you know? So so shelters could be contrived for few, and there was little food. Um, 
I wonder if Alfred had shelter and food. I wonder. I, I don't. I don't think he did. No. Who? Who? <laughs> <laughs> no. I think uh, he was. He was left out in the cold. I think he was one of the ones who died before he had any lines. Yes, he was one of the twenty-five percent that <laughs> yeah, died before he had any lines or appeared. Oh, that would. That would. Yeah. We could wish. Yeah. We could wish. And this is where I, I got what I was saying uh, before about, you know, people aren't just seeking recompense. I mean, no, you're right. at least some to of them buy the rich things are looking the for rich yeah. things from the South, the goodies. It's like, okay, we'll get made whole and we'll get some extra. And we want to profit. Yeah. This is like, yeah, exactly. I'm going to get my bills paid and I'm going to be able to take a vacation. Right. It's You, you see that a lot of people, people who survived the, the destruction of the town are now dying. Yeah, you know, the hunger yeah, and the sickness. Many took ill and afterwards yeah. died. Yeah, much sickness, great hunger. I mean, this is this is bad. Yeah. If twenty five percent of the people died the night of the attack, you're, we're talking maybe the town is down at a half of what it was. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, a few episodes ago, when we did um, a warm welcome, I, I yeah. talked about the prophecies and this sort of. Um, the sort of apocalyptic sense of them, but yeah. just focusing on the good parts, like the renewal and, and right. The, but and yeah, the we kind of forgot about this. They huh? kind of forgot about the fact that it has to be destroyed first. That's kind of yeah. what an apocalypse is. <laughs> it um, kind of is. <laughs> and oh, now I'm goodness. seeing that it's like, boy, the town has been completely destroyed. Bunch yeah. of people died. Bunch of people are still dying. You know, who yeah. knows how many have died? And if we don't get but, camp set up properly, there's going to be more people dying in the more, winter. More dying. Yeah. Yeah. If we don't get some food and. And some sort of uh, assistance, Mm -hmm. but fortunately the elves are on the way. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read that. The elven king had received news from his own messengers and from the birds that loved his folk and already knew much of what had happened. Very great indeed was the commotion among all things with wings that dwelt on the borders of the desolation of the dragon. The air was filled with circling flocks, and their swift-flying messengers flew here and there across the sky. Above the borders of the forest there was whistling, crying, and piping. Far over Mirkwood, tidings spread. Smaug is dead! Leaves rustled and startled ears were lifted. Even before the elven king rode forth, the news had passed west right to the pine woods of the Misty Mountains. Bayorn had heard it in his wooden house, and the goblins were at council in their caves. "'That will be the last we shall hear of Thorin Oakenshield, I fear,' said the king." He would have done better to have remained my guest. It is an ill wind all the same, he added, that blows no one any good. For he, too, had not forgotten the legend of the wealth of Thror. So it was that Bard's messengers found him now marching with many spearmen and bowmen, and crows were gathered thick above him, for they thought that war was awakening again, such as had not been in those parts for a long age." That's where those birds were gathering that yeah, I was talking right. about last time. Yeah. I was like, no, I as, as I was reading it, I'm going, yeah, Sean was right. See, we yeah. need a clip for that. We need, yeah, well, we need good audio luck. for that. Good luck. <laughs> I'm just going to have to synthesize something. So just cut, <laughs> Falsify. Find a really long passage of you reading and just cut the words I need from it and just... <laughs> Sean, mm, you were <laughs> right. Exactly, Yeah. <laughs> it together like that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Fake edit. Fake edit. Okay. Let's see. So, so the Elven King, now we, now we see how the Elven King, why the Elven King was on the move already. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that once again, he continues to be an absolutely charming fellow. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. He gets better soon, I will say. Yeah. 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 
He does. We're not going to read that part. We're going <laughs> to not tonight. But oh, oh, oh well, yeah, you're talking you about know, the part where he helps. He, he helps. He has out. pity and so forth. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, it's he does. pity, but it's also pity with an eye towards his own economic well-being. Let's be I clear. know, I know, it's true. It is quite true. He's um, yeah. Yeah, he does some good things in, in upcoming chapters. I think we talked about, you know, one of our frustrations with the film is how bad, how, how bad much of they a villain made they made him. He's really um, not a great guy, though. No, he's not. I mean, remember that last one is basically like, well, they deserve to die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's pretty brutal, man. And here, yeah. sure enough, well, it would have been better if they just remained my my guest. Which is a hilarious. Is he, is he really deluding himself? Yeah, that, that they were guests. Guests. Like, like you put them up in, you know, the best suite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the the Tariel suite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Tariel suite. Name no. named for a former captain of the guard. Yeah. Who 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 died before having any lines in the book or there you go. appearing in the book. Um I do I do want to <laughs> She's talk missed a name not appearing in this film. <laughs> right. There you go. See? She should have been. Um, um I do want to talk a little bit about um, It Is an Ill Wind all the same. Yes. I had a feeling you might. Yeah, because that's also that's also cited by Sam in the Grey Havens. That's right. Remember it? last chapter we had a line. Um, it was uh, uh, one of Bilbo's dads, one of Bungo's sayings mm-hmm. about uh, where there's life, there's hope and how Sam had right. mentioned yep. that. Right. Well, here we have another line that was mm-hmm. also cited by Sam. Sam um, is a font of secondhand wisdom, it seems. <laughs> Secondhand but, wisdom, I love that. But uh, but yeah, the, this this is actually a proverb that originates in uh, John Haywood's Proverbs in 1546. Oh wow, as, um, that is and, old. Yeah, and and I'm gonna do some more Middle English, or I guess almost Middle English. This is probably technically early modern English, but I digress. Sure. So it's it's in that uh, Proverbs book as an ill wind that bloweth no man to good, men say. Hmm. Um, and, and also in that Proverbs book are some other Proverbs that you might recognize. Uh, no fire without some smoke, cart before the horse, more the merrier, Wow! penny for your thoughts, and hitteth the nail on the head. Oh, there you um, go. Which, uh, and, and Shakespeare uses it twice in Henry VI, actually. Talking so, about ill wind. Ill, Ill wind, wind yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Sam, Sam says it after they were fixing up the Shire. I think I actually read it during Tolkien Reading Day. Uh, that hmm. it's an ill wind as blows nobody no good, as I always say, and all's well as ends better. So It's like you planned that. It's like I did, except I didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I do love how the Elven King re, recasts the facts, though, that he would have been my guest. Oh, yeah. That is just awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, he has pity. You know, we he see does. this in the, in the next line. There's a bit about how he was the lord of a good and kindly people. Here, you remember when we talked about el- there's still elves and elves are good people? Yeah. And we talked about how that really might have been a euphemism. Could be a euphemism, yeah. It was a way of like talking about fairy without mentioning fairy, and that was safer that way. Yeah. Here, it's not a euphemism. I mean, the, that's no, really, this is describing these people as good and kindly. Well, and that's um, and that's why I say, I mean, I think he's yeah. he's not a great guy, but he, he has some compassion here. Yes, yeah. he, he will profit from it, or he oh, hopes to profit from it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's not a monster. No. He's not the genocidal... Um, well, I'll just leave that there. He's not hes not genocidal. <laughs> well, he might have been if it was dwarves that were still left as opposed to men, but still. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but then he would just, hey, just come be my guests again, guys. Yeah. Be my guests. Your favorite room be is available, guests. sir. <laughs> you my, can check out any time you like. But you can but never, you may leave. never leave. But you never leave. 
uh, Mr. Oakenshield, your usual quarters are available. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to actually have you read the last uh, last couple of paragraphs here about the plans of the men. Okay. Their plans were soon made. With the women and the children, the old and the unfit, the master remained behind, and with him were some men of crafts and many skilled elves, and they busied themselves felling trees and collecting the timber set down from the forest. Then they set about raising many huts by the shore against the oncoming winter, and also under the master's direction they began the planning of a new town, designed more fair and large even than before, but not in the same place. They removed northward higher up the shore, for ever after they had a dread of the water where the dragon lay. He would never again return to his golden bed, but was stretched cold as stone, twisted upon the floor of the shallows. Hmm. There for ages his huge bones could be seen in calm weather amid the ruined piles of the old town. But few dared to cross the cursed spot, and none dared to dive into the shivering water or recover the precious stones that fell from his rotting carcass. But all the men of arms who were still able, and the most of the elven king's array, got ready to march north to the mountain. It was thus that in eleven days from the ruin of the town, the head of their host passed the rock gates at the end of the lake and came into the desolate lands. My goodness, that's... Uh, the, the description of there. the kind of the tomb of Smaug or the... Oh. the oh. Yeah, it's creepy. You could see his bones in, in clear weather so that the water was, you know, not... Uh, oh, goodness. Yeah. You so could the see water was still and you, Yeah. And, and it, was, it was a place of dread for people. It was a of cursed it spot. And yet, boy, you know, you'd think somebody would at least have the guts to try to dive in and recover those precious stones. That's a lot of gems. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, his entire chest, with the exception of the one small hole, uh, had been covered <laughs> with, with stuff. So. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's so important about that knowledge that nobody was, was yeah, willing to I dare that. I think that speaks you know? volumes. Yeah, it, it does. It really does. It really does. Few dared to cross and none dared to dive. Mm-hmm. So we also find out where they're going to relocate and the fact that they're going to build now Lake Town 3 <laughs> north of their <laughs> old location. Yep. Um, and the master stays behind, not surprisingly. Very, very convenient. Yeah, with, with the women, the children, the old and the unfit, yeah. which he's like three out of four. <laughs> Although, I guess, do they really want him marching with their army anyway? I mean, well, no, it that's seems true. like the, the master is probably a pretty decent project manager and they could probably use him, you know, yeah, on, on yeah, this probably. site. Probably, even though he's, you know, going to skim plenty off the top. Certainly, yeah. Uh, you know, his temporary shelter will be much nicer than anybody else's temporary oh, shelter. Oh, of course, yeah. It'll be huge. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, somebody should uh, somebody should tell him, like, dude, there's a whole dragon carcass covered with gems over there. Go get some of those. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, no, you no, want no, some no. wealth. None of that. No, no, that's, I won't that's too that. difficult for me. I'm not going to dive into the water. Yeah. <laughs> right. Out of your mind. That, believe it or not, does it for our chapter discussion today, folks. But as always, please stick around. We've got a lot of good stuff for you coming up, including a couple of good things here in Barnum's bag. Yes, please wait around for that. We're going to speculate, which is always, oh, well, exciting, I guess, is the word something for it. Something like that. Yeah, something. <laughs> but first, an announcement. An announcement you've heard, but is still worth listening to. Yes. Uh, assuming this isn't the first time you've listened to us, you have heard us tell you that we've been invited to MythMoot 5 this year as special guests. It's taking place June 21st to 24th, 2018, at the beautiful National Conference Center in Leesburg, Virginia. And it really, truly is an incredible opportunity. 
MythMood is a combination literary conference and fan convention, sponsored by Signum University. It's even more than that, but it's primarily about enjoying one another's company while we celebrate and engage with these stories we love. Alan and I are both very excited and a little scared about it because we're mm-hmm. going to be doing a live episode broadcast from MythMood. That's right. We're going to be in the main room, the only event in our time slot. And we'll be joined by some special guests, including John Garth, Corey Olson, Douglas Anderson, and Mark Ockrand. And the show is going to air live on Facebook at the time of the event. That's 1 o'clock Eastern Time on Saturday, June 23rd. Uh, That should be 6 o'clock UTC. The episode will also be released sometime shortly thereafter, (laughs) hopefully the next day, maybe the next day or night or maybe the following day, but somewhere in that time frame as uh, episode 88. That's the goal. We won't we won't hold you to it too hard. <sighs> Editing that while away from <laughs> While my also trying computer. to enjoy MythMood. That yeah, you know, that last I don't want to be a total yeah. antisocial guy. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I can't hang out. I got I got a show to edit. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's <sounds> terrible. <laughs> but anyway, if we stay on schedule, that's going to be happening right as we're wrapping up the Hobbit and getting ready for season 3. That's right. Now, for those of you who are able to attend, this would be a perfect chance to come see us live. We'd love to meet you. Yeah. To find out more about MythMoot and to register by May 31st, visit tinyurl.com slash MythMoot5. That's uh, tinyurl, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash MythMoot, M-Y-T-H-M-O-O-T-V, as in five. Now, MythMoot is generously covering our event registration and meals, and Thanks to those of you, nearly 70 T-shirts, I believe, who bought a T-shirt during our recent fundraiser, we've got our airfare covered, but we still have the hotel to pay for. And although the conference center does have a really nice group rate for everybody, we are but humble podcasters. So now we, we really sincerely hope that you'll help us out the rest of the way by joining the fellowship of the podcast. That's our Patreon family at patreon.com slash prancingponypod. We're getting very close to our next goal, which is where we were hoping to be before we did a live episode from Amoot. That's right. We're 90% of the way to the goal of doing a live broadcast from Amoot once a year. We, it may not stay there, but if it does, that's awesome because then yeah. we can start doing them every year and we'd love to be able to do that. Yeah. So as always, we trust you'll help us, at least those of you who are able to. In fact, we've had a few of you sign on at the higher tiers over the last month or two, so thank you very much. We're grateful for all you've done. Thanks to our Patreon family, we've been able to make some pretty big improvements to the show, including our move to weekly episodes. Of course, to make it worth your while, we want to have some really fun rewards for you as well, like exclusive content. Like our postscripts to each episode. After we record every episode, we listen to it before it releases to see what we left out. Any great insights or good jokes, Mm -hmm. bad jokes horrible mistakes. Yeah, we it's put... not exactly the highlight of our week. No, <laughs> no, certainly not the mistakes part of it. No. We put those into a 10 or so minute postscript that's available to our Patreon supporters. And those exclusive postscripts typically release the same day as the episodes they follow. So if you want access to those bonuses, be sure to join the Fellowship of the Podcast. Next, we want to give a very special shout out to our patrons at the Kirdan's contribution tier. Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Don in Vancouver Island, and Emily in Texas. Thank you all. And folks, if you want a personalized shout-out on our episodes, well, I know where to go. But we don't want you to feel obligated by any means. We'd love to have you in the Fellowship of the Podcast, but only if you can afford it, and only if you think we've earned it. If not, don't worry about it. We're grateful to have you listening to us, and we want you to keep listening, because we're certainly going to keep talking. That we are. Folks have been trying to shut me up for years and haven't succeeded. Anyway, Sean, why don't we uh, get on with Barlaman's bag? All right. Well, last time we spent a little time on Moria, and when we did that, we somehow missed that there's one more question about Moria in the bag that's been there for a while. So, bad Barlaman. 
you need to <laughs> you need to do better. Not that we're surprised. Yes. Uh, Maylene <laughs> in Chicago wrote in some time ago asking, I have a question about the doors of Durin that has bothered me for some time. In the Silmarillion, it is said that Khazad-dûm was only called Moria afterwards in the days of its darkness. That's in Of the Sindar. Mm-hmm. Yet the doors were clearly from an earlier time, when there was friendship and trade between the elves of Eregion and the dwarves of Khazad-dûm. Why, then, is the name Moria used on the doors? Was this some hmm. prank that Celebrimbor was pulling on his pal Narvi? <laughs> what do you think <laughs> is the reason? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that Celebrimbor, he's quite a joker. Um, Practical joker, man. Yeah, always messing with the dwarves. So, I don't know. What do you think, Alan? Well, I think I'm glad I have Hammond and Skull's Lord of the Rings Reader's Companion. Uh, they actually answer this exact question. Well, I'm not going to say they answer it. They, they address it and they give a few possible answers. Okay. The first, they say that in Appendix F, Tolkien says that Moria is an elvish name and given without love for the Eldar, though they might at need, in their bitter wars with the Dark Power and his servants, contrive fortresses underground, were not dwellers in such places of choice. They were lovers of the green earth and the lights of heaven, and Moria in their tongue means the black chasm. This suggests that the name was given because Khazad-dûm was underground, not because of any particular horror or darkness. So that's Hmm. one possible explanation, just that it has nothing to do with the Balrog or anything like that, that just Just because because it's it's underground, they're calling it Moria. Okay. And and I like that explanation. uh, There are a host of other options they list from a 1990 letter to Amon Hen, the Bulletin of the Tolkien Society by uh, Jeff Stevenson. If Moria was in fact inscribed on the doors when Frodo arrived there, he says this can only mean either, one, Celebrimbor foresaw the name, two, a later craftsman had reworked the inscription, or three, the magic lettering had rearranged itself when the name Moria was first uttered by the elves. I don't really like any of those, but he does say, <laughs> right. alternatively, Hathadrond was on the doors all along, but Gandalf read out Moria for this in the same way that he read out Holland when Eregion was inscribed. In this scenario, the illustrator of the Red Book derived his calligraphy by translating Gandalf's interpretation back into Elvish without considering the history of the doors. Okay, so our options are either the elves always called it Moria because, as Tolkien says in the appendix, they didn't like it even before the Balrog because it was dark and underground, Mm -hmm. or one of the other options basically boiling down to Celebrimbor foresaw the name Moria, or Mm -hmm. it was changed— either on the door itself or in the translation. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, do you have a favorite? Well, I, I kind of like the notion that it's a translation error, I think. Um, but given the condescending nature of most of the names elves give to other people, I tend to believe they always called it Moria. I mean, after all, they had no problem calling the folk who dwelled there stunted people. <laughs> That's very well said, as we, <laughs> as we just, just can't stop laughing about. No, um, I, yeah, I'm inclined to go with that, too. I mean, the elves have always called it Moria. I mean, I do like the last suggestion that, that Stevenson has. You know, Gandalf might have translated the name for Frodo, mm-hmm. and, you know, the illustrator of the Red Book just went with that. But yeah. I, I think I'm with you. I, I think I like yeah. the first answer. Yeah, I mean, we'll never know, obviously. It's speculation. Yeah. But, hey, that's what we do. That is. So our next one comes to us from our old friend Maria in Serbia. She asks a real short question, but it's not an easy one. Any idea why Iluvatar allowed the dwarves to awaken before men did? Oof. Well, there is no <laughs> direct answer to this anywhere in the text or in history of Middle-earth. So we are once again in pure speculation territory here. Sean, you want to start? Sure. I'll take this one. 
So <laughs> uh, it is a tough one. Um, but let's go all the way back to the earliest chapters of the Silmarillion to orient people with this one who maybe haven't been listening to us from the beginning or didn't go back and listen to those season one episodes. So remember that the dwarves were created in chapter two of the Silmarillion by Aule and completely without Iluvatar's permission. Uh, they were ultimately allowed to live and Iluvatar actually adopted them as his own. But they were not allowed to awaken until later after the elves had awakened because Iluvatar wanted elves to be the firstborn. Uh, Iluvatar said, I will not suffer this, that these should come before the firstborn of my design. So that much is clear in the text. That, sure. that That's why they came after elves. It's also clear in the text that dwarves actually awakened before men because they do show up in chapter 10, which is before the sun and moon are created. So, okay, right. the question is why? Iluvatar adopted the dwarves, but then... Why didn't he let men awaken second before the children of his adoption? Hmm. There is a paragraph from chapter one of the Silmarillion that we've cited in the past in regards to free will and the sort of the difference between uh, the free will of elves versus the free will of men. Remember that uh, they right. should have a virtue to shape their life, um, that whole mm -hmm. passage. That paragraph contains... Outside of the music, right. Right, yeah. That contains uh, a statement that's pretty easy to overlook, uh, but I think it's really important. It says, speaking of men... Of their operation, everything should be, in form and deed, completed, and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. So I read that as meaning that it's men who will be entrusted to bring the, the cosmic drama, if you will, to its close. I think through men's actions, mm. everything, mm. everything, <laughs> yeah, everything with a capital E, Every, will be, everything, yeah. yeah, will be completed and feel, fulfilled according to Iluvatar's plan. I think that's the role men are meant to play. Yeah. And I think that's backed up by Finrod's words in the Athrabeth, which we read uh -huh. way back when. Um, way you know, back episode 10, yeah. Yeah, where he calls men the heirs and fulfillers of all. Hmm. So I think if that's the role of men to fulfill this to the end, men need to come last. And, and while we don't usually hmm. think of coming last as a good thing, um, in this case it is very significant and it's important that men need to come last, which I think means dwarves just get stuck in the middle. Ah, the problem middle child. That explains a lot, actually. Uh, no, let me let me think here. I'm 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 a bit hesitant to speculate about the reasons that, well, you know, the supreme deity had to make a particular decision. <laughs> um, I want to second guess God, That's but fair. I'm willing to give it a go. Uh, you speculated correctly, I think, that it had to do with the importance of the role of men. In fact, I echo your answer as far as it goes. I, I would also suggest, though, that by allowing the dwarves to waken first, the elves were given a chance to learn how to interact with another race before the more important men came onto the scene. Hmm. You remember at first, that before they encountered the Nalgrim, the elves actually hunted the petty dwarves. Right. They thought them to be nothing more than animals that, that walked on two legs. Who knows what their first reaction would have been upon seeing men. It might not have been to walk into their camp, pick up a harp, and start playing a song. It might have been to attack. <laughs> right. Um, you know, there, there wasn't an automatic friendship and immediate alliance between elves and men. I mean, eventually that came. But the fact that there wasn't that sort of uh, kind of history of enmity between them mm -hmm. made it easier for the Yadine to truly join themselves to the elves in, in service. You know, the sons of the leaders yeah, would yeah. go and, and the become, Adine you know, that were serve their kings. The elves, yeah. Exactly. Uh, in battle, of course, as allies, especially mm -hmm. in uh, the Near Night Thornodiad. The Near Night. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's late. Yep. Um, and eventually, even in marriage. That's a fascinating thought. So the dwarves kind of gave the elves some practice. Like a practice run. On, yeah, yeah, on how to treat other races. Kind of allowed there them to. There is another sentient race. Yeah. You know, and 
allows them to sort of get over some of their prejudices yes. with a race yes. where the stakes aren't as high because exactly. Iluvatar doesn't have this big plan for them. That's that's a cool mm-hmm. thought. That's an interesting an interesting addition to mine. I like that. Yeah. It's the only thing I could think of, but yeah, I like it. Well, thank you, Maylene and Maria. And folks, that almost wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Do stick around, though, for just a couple more minutes. As always, thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to having you join us again next time when we come to Chapter 15 of The Hobbit. That's when you're going to find out what happens when a whole town of men bring their insurance claim to a bunch of dwarves sitting on a pile of treasure. (laughs) Uh, Did you file your claim in a timely fashion? (laughs) Yeah, supporting documentation. I assume you paid your premiums on time. (laughs) I think those crows know exactly what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. Folks, we uh, invite you to please check out the official library tab on our website, prancingponypodcast.com. We've got links to everything from inexpensive paperbacks to some really good stuff for your Tolkien collection. And in the meantime, if you wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes for us and leaving a review, we'd be very grateful for that. Those reviews help us get more visibility in iTunes, and that means a bigger and more exciting community of Tolkien lovers. And thanks to those of you who have, by the way. We read every single one of them, and we really do appreciate all the nice things you say about us. In fact, we've now started picking out one special review every week to feature on our social media networks as a way of saying thank you. Mm-hmm. So if you'd like to see your name or your alias and lights on our pages, now it's easy. All you have to do is leave us a review. That's right. And make sure you never miss an episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can find us in most any podcast directory, including Spotify now. And we want to thank all of you who have become part of our social media family. We set out to start a Tolkien conversation that everyone could join. And that's why we have our online common room on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and thrush thank you gifts to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. That's Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. We'll try to get them into our next episode. Well, what, about an hour 40, somewhere around there? Still, far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. 